Isaiah chapter 9. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You've multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. We've been in this passage last week, we're in it this week and next week. It's the sort of home base for, or the landing point, the end point for us in this journey. We wanted to finish our series in Isaiah's chapter 7 through 9 on uh, the morning, uh, next morning, excuse me, next Christmas. I need a mulligan. I need to like start over. I walk outside and come right back in and then we'll just start over. Next week on Christmas morning, we want to land on verses six and seven. So today we're going to be considering verses three through five, but I feel like I need to do some background. We have folks visiting with us today that are here for baptism, or we have folks that may have missed a Sunday, or we have folks that may just be visiting just because they're looking for a church home. So I'm going to do some background, and I'm also doing it for the benefit of those who have been part of the journey with us. This is a very, I don't know, I do know why, it's an obscure and undeveloped part of the journey for a lot of Christians, where we are in the book of Isaiah. Because it's complicated. It's just a whole lot easier to preach from other places and to use Isaiah as a place to support where we're actually preaching from, to grab some texts and sort of read those texts as support for somewhere else. Because Isaiah is a little complicated. So I'm gonna take just a few moments and give a little bit of background of what leads up to chapter nine. Okay, so let's put that first slide up. Let me acquaint you with a little bit of the story, okay? We've got, basically down here in the south, we've got Judah. Up here, we've got Israel. Now, let me back up for you. Um, The Exodus was about 1,500 years before Christ. The Exodus, I'm hoping that most of you are familiar with the Exodus. That's where God leads his people out of Egypt, and he leads them after 40 years of wandering in the wilderness into the promised land. Now, the promised land, for the most part, is on the west side of the Jordan here, and I even prayed earlier during our baptism as God delivers his people through the watery ordeal that they cross the Jordan on dry ground and then go into the promised land and begin the conquest. Okay, Joshua and those guys, you know, they fit the battle of Jericho. That, all that stuff happens here. And then after that begins a period of the judges for about 300 years. After the conquest, everybody moves to their own little area. Now, this isn't all, I don't have all the 12 tribes listed up here because that's not important. 
I just wanted you to kind of have a sense of the layout to see where these different tribes landed. Some of the tribes ended up on the other side of the Jordan, and there's a half-tribe Manasseh and half-tribe here. There's cool stories if you want to read about how that all happened. Okay, but what I wanted you to see is that the tribes are distributed throughout all Israel. There's not a division between the south and the north at this point. That happens at the hand of Solomon's son, Rehoboam. Rehoboam was a knucklehead. He listened to his high school buddies instead of listening to the guys that were giving him good, wise counsel that said, don't be heavy and hard on this people. He said, I'm going to be much heavier and much harder. And what it resulted in was a split between the southern kingdom and the northern kingdom, which ended up being Judah and then everybody else. Okay, so there's, from this point on, as I'm talking this morning, for most of the morning, Israel means these guys to the north. Judah means this tribe to the south. Okay? All right. Everybody got that? Okay. All right. Now, we're going to pick up, uh, at, let, let me think about how much I want to develop here. 300 years, okay? Um, let, let me back up. 300 years or so are the time of the, three to 400 years are the time of the judges, okay? A little more development. After that point is the time where the people said, hey, we want a king. Everybody else around us has a king. We want a king. So about a thousand years before Christ, there is one king of this entire Israel. And then, as I told you, Solomon's son split the kingdom between the south and the north, okay? And then from that point on, there's about 300 years of twice the lesson of how bad kings can be, okay? There's 300 years or so of kings in the north and kings in the south. If you want to read about those stories, they're in First and Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles. And you may have read those before and said, well, there's a king of Israel and a king of Judah. That's speaking of the north and the south. There's this account, this dialogue and story that develops in those books telling the story, the disappointing stories in the north and the south of all these kings, okay? Now... Chapter 7 and 8 of Isaiah developed the story of a guy named King Ahaz. Okay, King Ahaz is the king of Judah at the point or during the time or during part of the ministry of Isaiah. And King Ahaz is threatened by Israel to the north and Syria even further to the north. King Ahaz and Judah are threatened by these two northern kingdoms and they faithlessly, godlessly make a deal with the king of Assyria to protect themselves. Okay, they ask this other king, this godless pagan king, a guy named Tiglath-Pileser, to come to their aid and protect them from Israel, the northern kingdom, and Syria. Okay, it's a godless and it's a faithless plan. And what makes matters worse, Ahaz arranged it all but the masses of Judah cheer him on. Okay, it's a very dark moment in the time of, in the period of, uh, in this period in Judah. It was a, it was not an oops decision either. It was a very calculated, faithless, godless plan to make this deal with the king of Assyria. Because all the while Isaiah is saying, God is going to protect you. He's going to protect Judah. Please don't do this. If you've been with us these last few weeks and you've walked through chapters seven and eight with us, you may have felt like I felt, like this people are just gonna be destroyed. They are toast. They are godless, faithless, proud. They're not listening to God and a just God is just gonna go ahead and wipe them out and destroy them. But then comes chapter nine. Chapter nine is a surprising chapter in the story of Isaiah because up to this point, things are looking grim. 
Things are looking terrible. But in chapter 9 and verses 1 and 2, we considered last week, go ahead and put slide that next slide up there, slide 3. We considered that in chapter 9, verses 1 and 2, that Isaiah points out something's going to happen to Nephtali and Zebulun. Hit that next slide. The Assyrians who are going to protect Judah, do you remember they made this deal godlessly and faithlessly, they invade Israel to the north, and the first place they invade is Naphtali and Zebulun. Okay, hit that next slide. And that's the first place that it officially becomes dark. That's what we developed last week. Okay, and hit that next slide. But it's also the first place that we found in chapter 9 that it will 700 years later become light. The first place that the Assyrians invade is the place where Jesus is going to show up 700 years later and where his ministry is going to begin right there in the land of Naphtali and Zebulun, which is later called Galilee of the nations or Galilee of the Gentiles. Where it was dark first is where it will become light first, 700 years later when the light of the world begins his ministry. Last week, we made a beeline to the realization that this prophecy, this oracle that Isaiah shared 700 years before Christ was fulfilled in the person and work of Jesus Christ. We're beginning this morning with the answer. He is the fulfillment of the promises that God made through Isaiah to Judah and Israel. The promises would apply to all of Israel, to the south, Judah, and to the north, Israel, which will later become Israel as a whole again, and even later called Judea. Okay. I don't know if I made a mess of that, but I gave it a shot. Now we're going to pick up this morning in verses three through five. And what I want you to do in these next few minutes, I want you to imagine that you have a little basket, a little wee basket. And in your little wee basket, you're going to gather up the promises that God makes to his people from the, in the south and the north through Isaiah right now, the promises that will be fulfilled in the person of Christ. We're going to gather up a little basket full of promises. There are five promises in these next few minutes that we're going to gather up. First of all, in verse three, you have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. Let's just grab some of the things, some of the promises out of this passage. First of all, joy in its fullness is coming to this very dark place. Joy in its fullness will come through the person of Jesus Christ to a suffering people. And he describes the joy in a few ways. First of all, instead of extinction, remember I just said, if you're reading closely chapters 7 and 8 and you're watching and considering the godlessness and faithlessness of this people, You have to be expecting that a just God is just going to smash them and cream them. But the fact is, they are not. They are not going to become extinct. And in fact, the promise here is this nation will actually grow. A shocking promise. They're not going to become extinct. In fact, they're going to grow. Listen to this little excerpt from Isaiah chapter 49. It's just so sweet to consider. Surely your waste and your desolate places and your devastated land, surely now you will be too narrow for your inhabitants. And those those who swallowed you up will be far away. Listen, the children of your bereavement during this time of suffering will yet say in your ears, 
This place is too narrow for me. Make room for me to dwell in. Then you will say in your heart, who has borne me these? I was bereaved and barren, exiled and put away, but who has brought up these? Behold, I was left alone. From where have all these come? Thus says the Lord God, behold, I will lift up my hand to the nations and raise my signal to the peoples and the nations shall bring your sons in their arms and your daughters shall be carried on their shoulders. What a gorgeous passage. Promising that the nations will bring the fulfillment of this promise. That in fact, you won't become extinct. You will become abundant. You will become many and the nations will bring those offspring to you. Man, we are a product of that. I don't know if you realize that. That's the first thing you can throw in your basket. Instead of extinction, you're gonna actually grow this nation. Second thing that we can grab from this little, uh, from this passage and put in our basket is that instead of weak harvests, you're going to bring abundance and the joy that is associated with that abundance. It made me think about the song that I used to sing when I was a kid growing up in church, very old-fashioned Southern Baptist song, bringing in the sheaves. We will come rejoicing, bringing in the sheaves. That's the promise that's made to this people. Y'all gonna be bringing in some sheaves. Okay, you're not gonna be extinct. You're actually gonna grow as a people and you're gonna experience the joy of the harvest. The third thing that's gathered up from this passage we can put in our basket is that in place of being the spoil of other nations, which is very much what they're about to experience. Daniel's gonna get hauled off and become a servant in somebody's court. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are gonna get hauled off and they're gonna become a servant in somebody's court. They're gonna be the spoil of someone else's victory. Instead of being the spoil of the nations, you're going to divide the spoil. I was imagining what that feels like and I'm imagining what life was like for me on, on, on the night, on Halloween night after I'd been out trick-or-treating. Where I came home with the bag of the loot, the spoil, and I pour this thing out and I've got candy, all manner of candy in there that I'm gonna eat in like a day or two and be sick as a dog. But man, there's some gladness that goes with enjoying the spoil of a night of trick-or-treating. Imagine the gladness that goes with, with gathering the spoil rather than being the spoil. That's the third thing you can put in the basket. First of all, instead of extinction, you're going to grow this next nation. Instead of weak harvest, you're going to experience the joy of abundance. Instead of being the spoil, you're going to experience the gladness of dividing the spoil. Isaiah so far in just this one verse is dealing with the very real fears of this people. Climb into their story and imagine what life would be like for them. They're in danger of death, being ripped from their homes, losing everything, and these are the promises that are made to them. He's dealing with their particular fears in a surgical way with surgical promises that will bring them, that he's gonna bring them joy of the harvest and the gladness of the spoil. Now there's three ways that their joy is gonna be increased, and we're gonna look at the first two briefly. The third one we're going to say for Christmas morning. And if you're wondering how to kind of notice what they are, they start with the word four in the next few verses. Verses four and five, there are two fours. And those, that's what we're going to look at in the next few minutes. For the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor you have broken as on the day of Midian. 
four, here's the second thing, for every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. Now keep your basket out because you need to have your basket handy because there's two more treats to put in this basket. Promises, sweet ones. First one, here, there's the introduction of Exodus language. The words that are used in verses four there point toward, point back to the Exodus. Words like yoke and burden and oppressor and shoulder. Those are all words that were very familiar to them that were taking them all back to the time of the Exodus when God did the work of delivering a people. God wants them to know and be reminded that he's gonna do the work of this victory. It'll be his victory because he's going to win it. He also takes them back to the time of Gideon. This mention of Midian is taking them back to Gideon and his army of 300 water lappers, whatever you want to call them, that defeat 135,000 Midianites, where God clearly, if you know that story, God clearly won the victory. Deliverance will be sure, and it will be won and provided by the Lord. Victory over their enemies is an act of God. And that's the fourth thing you can put in your little basket there, that the yoke and the rod and the staff of the oppressor will be broken. God will do it. God's gonna win the victory. And then the fifth thing that you can put in your basket comes from that next verse, or that verse five. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. It's so complete, this victory, that the enemy's boots and garments, and you can imagine that everything else that the enemy has with them, including their weapons, will be burned or destroyed. Just like the passage that, Bud, that the Jones family and Bud read this morning, will be hammering out their weapons into plowshares and pruning hooks. Someone so awesome is going to come that he's gonna restore them to the kind of things that they needed in Eden. Gardening tools gardening instruments. Someone so profound is going to come and bring light to this darkness that he will restore them to this kind of peace. Now, the five things that we've gathered up in these last few minutes. First of all, the promises made. First of all, a growing nation. You're not going to become extinct. Second of all, joy in an abundant harvest. Third, gladness that goes with dividing the spoil. Fourth, the yoke and the, 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 the rod and the staff of the oppressor is broken. And fifth, the boots and the garments of the enemy are burned. Now, that's pretty awesome, isn't it? I want you just to imagine being that people and just considering how much you needed all those things. You're going to see some very tough times. This people is about to experience some very tough times, and these kind of promises would have been something they really celebrated, something they would really enjoy. And just consider how great they are. You're not going to be extinct. You're going to grow. You're going to experience real joy and real gladness. When you put your hand to something in a harvest, you're going to get uh, in a work, you're going to get a harvest. Those are the kind of promises that any of us would enjoy. Anybody that comes up against you, God's going to whip them. Man, let's really enjoy those kinds of promises. But then I want you to consider for a minute what unfolded over the next 750, 800 years. All right, we're going to have some honest brokering here in these next few minutes. And I want to show you what unfolded for this people over the next seven to 800 years. Just briefly, with some high watermarks of what this people actually experienced. 
This people who've been promised these basket full of awesome promises. Let's see what they actually experience. Put that fifth slide back up there for me. Okay, the Assyrians are going to invade. Okay, we know that already. Assyrians are going to invade and it's not going to be pretty. Assyrians are going to eventually take um, all of Israel and they're going to surround Samaria in a three-year siege. Now, let me tell you what happens during a siege. People end up getting to the point where they're so hungry and they're so thirsty that they can actually cook one another and eat one another. We're talking about some heartache and some darkness that is unimaginable for us. Unimaginable. But we need to climb into it because we need to understand really truly how dark it was. This is the people he's making this promise to. The Assyrians are going to invade in 722 BC. Samaria is going to be sieged, surrounded, taken, destroyed. Okay, and then 586 BC, Jerusalem is going to be surrounded and it's going to be destroyed and the temple is going to be destroyed. Okay, this is the people these promises are made to. This is the kind of stuff that's going to happen to them in the next 700 years. They're going to be exiled. In the north, these people are going to be exiled into Assyria and the Assyrians are going to move their people into the land. There's going to be such a mass movement of this people that this will actually become the lost 10 tribes, the 10 lost tribes of Israel. You ever heard that term? That's how they're lost. They're ripped from their homes and taken to Assyria. And in the south, the exile for these guys is going to be, they're going to be exiled into Babylon. Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Those guys, they're exiled, ripped from their homes and taken to foreign lands. When I was a kid, I used to listen to a Willie Nelson uh, record over and over again, and it was old hymns and old songs, and it was one of those that he sang, and I can't even remember what psalm it is. I meant to look it up. By the, by the rivers of Babylon, there we sat down, and there we wept. They asked us to sing a song of our homeland, but we couldn't sing because we were experiencing the darkness of exile. Man, this is the people these promises are made to. And this is actually what's unfolding. Here's a few more excerpts. After they're exiled, after they're ripped from the north to Assyria, after they're ripped from the south to Babylon, a few people actually get to trickle back home. Ezra, Nehemiah, those guys actually get to kind of come home with a few people and rebuild the wall around Jerusalem and rebuild the temple. And things are looking good and things are looking up. Like Maybe now these promises are going to be realized. They're coming back home and imagining, I can't help but think that they're imagining, maybe now things are going to be great. Maybe now we're going to have the wind to our back, and maybe now we can empty out that basket full of promises and just revel in them and enjoy them. But if you've read the story of Nehemiah, you know that they faced severe and significant persecution from the people around them. Because when they moved out, it, caused, it created a vacuum And all these Canaanites and all these ites of every manner and every sort moved in, including some Assyrians and Babylonians. And they heckled them and they harassed them the entire time that they're rebuilding the wall and the temple. Man, things aren't any... The the basket isn't poured out yet. Those things haven't been realized yet. Things are still very, very dark. Not long after that, you may know the story of Alexander the Great and the Greek rule of this area. The Greeks take control of Israel to the north and the south, all of the land under Alexander the Great. 
And things aren't necessarily terrible at that point. Alexander the Great has a plan to Hellenize this people, or sort of Greek eyes, if you've ever seen that word Hellenize. They want them to be like Greeks. So they want to Hellenize this land of the Jews and this people. So it's not terrible, at least initially. But then eventually in 165 BC, after Alexander the Great has died, the Ptolemies and the Seleucids are going back and forth, owning this property and owning this people, sort of like a bad foster family swapping a kid back and forth. And they're experiencing the terrible time of the Ptolemies and Seleucids. Then in 165 BC, a guy named Antiochus Epiphanes, the Seleucid ruler, attacks Jerusalem, pillages, and, re- and he pillages the temple. He, te- he took his captives, women and children. He outlawed Judaism. He made circumcision in the study of Torah illegal. He placed a statue of Zeus in the temple. Is the basket poured out yet? No, it's still terribly dark. Zeus moves into the temple. He sacrificed swine on the altar and slung pig fat all over the inside of the temple. He he, he stripped the temple of its sacred vessels, including the golden menorah. This guy, let me just just consider this. Luke reminded me of something that I I found long ago. It's in the book of 2 Maccabees. Listen to this, Antiochus, this guy, Antiochus Epiphanes, which means, it's what he named himself, Epiphanes, means God in the flesh. This guy thought he was God. You got to know things aren't going to go well for you when your ruler thinks that he's God. They actually call him Antiochus Epiphanes, which means crazy man, because this guy was absolutely out of his mind. He arrested a mother and her seven sons and tried to force them to eat pork. When they refused, he tortured and killed the sons one by one by boiling them, mind you. The narrator mentions that the mother was the most remarkable of all and deserves to be remembered with special honor. She watched her seven sons die in the space of a single day and she bore it bravely because she put her trust in the Lord. Man, this is a seriously dark time. This guy hated Jews like it was his job. Man, that basket hasn't been poured out yet. They have to be wondering, when's it coming? When are these promises that Isaiah has made kind of come to us? When's the wind finally going to come to our back? When are we finally going to be, be relieved from this terrible torture and terrible experience at the hands of many oppressors? Things didn't get any better after that. After that came Julius Caesar in Rome and the Roman Empire. This whole area is renamed Judea. It's not even Israel anymore. It's Judea. It's a Roman province under Roman rule. They took control in 63 BC and they appoint a guy that's not even a true Jew to be the king of the Jews, a guy named Herod. Herod wasn't even a true Jew. He was Idumean. He came from the line of Esau, not Jacob. And this guy proclaims himself and they recognize him as king of the Jews, and you may be familiar with, this is the guy that ordered the massacre of the boys two years and younger in the area around Bethlehem. Yeah, that guy. So the basket hadn't been poured out yet, apparently. Man, don't you want it to be? Can you imagine being that people for 700 years? Relentlessly experiencing darkness. But then the light of the world came. All right? light of the world came. Hit that next slide up there. Yeah. 
the light of the world came. Let's just consider that for a minute. He's born, his ministry in Galilee begins a few years later, and then all those promises are going to be fulfilled, right? They're going to be glaring and obvious fulfillments of those, this growing nation, joy and an abundant harvest, gladness that goes with dividing the spoil. The yoke of the oppressor will be broken. The enemy clothing will be burned, right? Isn't that exactly how it happened? Jesus is crowned with a golden crown and he moves into Herod's temple or Herod's palace. He raises up an army that's undefeatable. Isn't that how it went down and all those promises are being fulfilled? He raises up a Roman army and then they divide the spoil of the Roman empire like kids dividing their candy on Halloween night. It's awesome, wasn't it? Wasn't it just so cool how he did all that? But we know that's not the way it went down. Instead, the light of the world was arrested and he was beaten and he was hung on a cross under a mocking inscription, King of the Jews. Isaiah, where's that basket? Where's that basket full of promises? Anybody else really wondering at that at this point? Where is it? His crucifixion, the mocking, the beating, all of that was done at the hand of the oppressor. Where's the basket full of promises? And I read the Gospels and I don't remember anybody's boots or garments being burned. In fact, what I remember is that Jesus' clothing became someone else's spoil where the hand of the oppressor cast lots for that clothing. Where's the basket? Where's the basket full of awesome? And following this time, or following this, Jesus during the time of his arrest, if you were to follow Christ, if you were one of his followers during this period, during the time of his arrest, during the time of his crucifixion or afterwards, that would likely mean your arrest and martyrdom. So where's the basket full of promises? Following this light of the world would likely mean it would cost you your freedom. It would likely cost you your relationship with your family, your Jewish family, as they cast you out as some strange lunatic convert. At the very least, it would mean that you'd be a destitute outcast in Jerusalem, feeling the persecution not only of Rome, but also the persecution from Jews. Man, I could do with that basket about now. Maybe the basket would be poured out in the years after this, in the centuries after this. Maybe all these promises will be fulfilled. Maybe, maybe it would be then, or maybe it would be now that following and trusting Christ as the light of this world means that everything will just go our way now. Or maybe it happened at some point in the past. Does anyone feel the palpable incongruity? Let's be honest brokers here for a minute. Does anyone see the disconnect between this basket full of promises and what actually went down for them? What actually has gone down for lots of Christians over the ages where following Christ could likely cost you everything. Does anyone want to say, hey, when does all this get easy? Does anyone wonder when all these promises are going to be fulfilled? 
I've got some help for you, I think. I wanted you to feel this incongruity for a moment because I think all these promises were absolutely and completely accomplished in and through the person and work of Jesus Christ 2,000 years ago. Let me show you. Despite the terrible cost of discipleship, despite what it might mean to follow Christ during his life or after, Acts tells us that numbers were added to them every day. Thousands in the beginning. Then every day they're just doing life together and numbers are added to them every day in the very city where they, where he was crucified. What was that first promise? Oh, you're not going to become extinct. You're actually going to grow. And the nations are going to bring you in their arms. Man, let's just celebrate, first of all, that the church cannot be extinguished. And it's under the heavy hand of persecution that the church actually flourishes. Man, let's celebrate this reality that in the person of Jesus Christ and through his work, the numbers were added to them every day. And they could say something, I bet they could say from time to time, this place is too narrow for me. Remember that? It's too narrow for me, mom and dad. That's what our kids are saying in the nursery. I mean, you think we're not experiencing the same thing when our nursery is packed to the gills? You think we're not experiencing the same thing when Jeff and Christine pass through the waters of faith right here? Numbers were added to them every day. Man, we're walking in the fulfillment of that. Numbers are added to them every day. Here's some recent people that have been added to our numbers. Elizabeth Gallion. Josh and Georgia Corey, Isaac Taylor, Tristan Brown, Reese Holt, Owen Lane, Josie Pfeiffer, Trevor Daniel. Man, enjoy this promise. It is absolutely fulfilled, a growing nation. We're part of it. Despite the terrible cost of discipleship, numbers were added to the church every day. Despite the persecution they faced, they found joy and gladness. Harvest time type joy and spoil type gladness. The kind of gladness that makes a man named Stephen have a look of an angel on his face when he's about to be stoned with rocks. Yeah, yep, that joy is fulfilled in the person and work of Christ. When Silas and Paul can be thrown in jail in Macedonia after being beaten and sing hymns while they're in jail and their feet are shackled, yes, absolutely, joy has come. Absolutely, these things have been filled in the person and work of Christ. Joy and an abundant harvest, gladness that goes with dividing the spoil. Absolutely, this is fulfilled in Christ. When Jesus' own brother, James, the bishop, of the church in Jerusalem says these words, count it all joy, God's people, when you encounter various trials of all sort and all manner, 
knowing that God has a purpose in that. There's meaning to that. You can count it all joy. Yes, I think they're fulfilled in the person and work of Christ. Despite the very real yoke and staff and rod of very real oppressors, ones who divided the spoils at Christ's crucifixion, ones who would later find entertainment in Christians fighting lions in, in some version of the Colosseum all over the Roman Empire, ones who might stroll in their gardens under the light of human Christian torches. Despite that and every sort of oppression Christians have experienced since then, Christ, through the cross, put, his, put Satan and his minions to open shame. Colossians chapter 2 verse 15 says, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. He broke our yoke of sin and slavery or sin of slavery to sin and Satan, triumphing over them through the very event that looked like his defeat. And then to top it all off, he left the tomb quite vacant defeating the enemy of death. These are very real fulfillments of Isaiah's oracle. They're not figurative. They're not metaphorical. These are wonderful realities that are to have very real purchase in our circumstances. Some of you might think, or you might know some people who think that this whole thing, believing these sorts of things, looking at Christ's cross and seeing fulfillment of these prophecies, as, or seeing those prophecies fulfilled in Christ and his work, you might see that as just some sort of coping mechanism and crutch. Or you might know people who do. Some of you may be here with a friend this morning. You're thinking, man, this is such baloney. Or you may know people who do. Who's saying, man, this is just all a big crutch and just a way to cope by reframing your circumstances in a way that's digestible. I know those people. I've heard from those people before. That's just a crutch and a way to cope. Let me address that concern. First of all, everyone has crutches. Everyone has crutches. Every single human being has a way of working out circumstances in a way that they can cope with them. And what they don't realize is they're leaning on something. They're leaning on something because human beings, unlike critters, search for meaning. And they're leaning on some way to make meaning of circumstances, difficult and dark circumstances. Greg Fields and I were talking last night and I asked Greg, I said, what are some ways that you hear people's crutches? Or what are some versions of crutches that you hear? 
as he talks with people or he's heard over the years and just kind of picked his brain. He said, here's some crutches that he can think of. The way humankind finds meaning in circumstances. People often say, I'm learning something here. I must be learning something here. There's no clue in that statement who's actually teaching or what the purpose here is, what the end result is, but I'm learning something here is what people will often say. People that don't know the Lord. People that aren't leaning on Christ. People might lean on Murphy's Law and say, well, (laughs) I was due. So that's the way Murphy's Law works out. Let me attribute it to some sort of law, which is not even a real law. Sometimes you hear people say, well, this circumstance is going to make me a better person. That's a way to sort of lean into something. To trust in some sort of plan or design, even though you're not attributing it to any sort of personhood. Have you ever heard anybody say, well, every cloud has a silver lining. Let's cope with this circumstance by leaning into that crutch. And then people accuse the church of having a crutch. These are the sorts of things that the world leans into. And we're accused of having a crutch. Man, the list goes on and on. We had, I have a list, a page full of examples. Everyone, though, has crutches. And you're naive if you think you don't. And your friend that thinks that we're just leaning into some sort of crutch and they're not, they're naive too. Everyone leans on something. Secondly, what Isaiah prophesied and what Christ fulfilled is a crutch for Christians. I want the awkwardness of that to hit you for a minute. These promises that Isaiah made that we believe were fulfilled in the person and work of Christ is absolutely a crutch. Man, it's a crutch all day. It is very much a way for us to cope with and reframe our circumstances. And that's okay. There's nothing wrong with that. It is how we make sense of our circumstances. But here's the cool thing about our crutch. He stepped out of a tomb on Sunday morning 2,000 years ago. Here's a good thing about our crutch compared to other crutches. Our crutch lives. Compared to every other crutch that every other religion or every other worldview can offer or whatever other philosophy can offer, our crutch is a being. He lives and he's for us and he intercedes for us and he sits in the presence of our creator. You bet I have a crutch, but I'll take a crutch that lives over every other crutch. Don't let anybody tell you in some sort of sense of talking down to you that you have a crutch. You can respond back. You say, you bet I do. And he lives. He walks with me and he talks with me. He lives. Unlike the crutches of other religions and the crutches that the world has to offer, our crutch isn't just an idea. Our crutch is a being. Our crutch is a person. Do you understand the difference? Man, we are leaning into a living being, 
a person who lives, who's for us, who has given us access to our Creator. This person won our adoption into God's family. You bet I'm going to lean into him. I hope you will too. 700 years of remnant faithful folk leaned into him while they weren't yet seeing any sense of fulfillment of these promises. And then after that, when Christ came and he worked and he was crucified and he was risen, there's the potential for people to go, wait a second, where's the basket full of promises? But for the people that are discerning that see what was actually accomplished there, man, we lean into him. We're not leaning into some idea. I'll take that crutch all day long. Please, Lord, please, by all means, help me reframe my circumstances in light of what he's done.